Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about solo variants. We're talking about how to scale a game down to one player to make it work with one player for that really good single player experience. And I'm talking to a person I consider to be an expert, Mr. Morton Peterson of Automa Factory. Uh, Morton, really appreciate you being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, man. And so just give the, the listeners an idea, like who you are, kind of your background, the games you've worked on, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, if you talk outside of gaming, uh, then I'm a programmer by trade and uh, have been into board gaming for all of my life. Started playing Monopoly games like that with my parents. And then once I was able to uh, to play games without having my parents along, then I start playing way more and then the final piece of the puzzle came in when I got good enough at reading English to be able to buy games with English rules. Yes, that opened up the doors to so many games. So uh, personally, I'm a 42-year-old guy from Denmark, um, and I live outside of Copenhagen with my wife and son. Yeah, so it's a little, little cooler where you are compared to where I am right now, I think. <laughs> a little probably <laughs> understating it. Yeah, absolutely. But tell me about Otama Factory. Tell me about, you know, working with that a company you basically started to help, you know, game designers scale their games down to one player. Yeah, exactly. Um so it happens basically by random chance that I, I got into this. Um because I was just getting home from a vacation in Tuscany with my family and then I saw that uh, this guy I didn't know called Jamie Stegmeier. He had just launched a Kickstarter campaign for a game that took place in Tuscany and uh, where you could go to vineyards. Um, and I've just been to vineyards back in the vacation in uh, Tuscany. So I thought that was funny. So I contacted him um, and got talking. I play tested the, the game uh, during the Kickstarter and wrote up a review and we could talk more and more. And uh, at the same time, I was into solitaire gaming, wrote a blog about that. So when a playtest uh, of uh, the expansion to Viticulture started talking about uh, a solo mode, then Jamie turned to me and uh, asked me to do it because he wasn't into solo gaming and knew that I was. And so uh, it all started there with the uh, Viticulture. And since then, my team and I have been working in between two cities on Scythe, um, the first expansion to Scythe, Invaders from Afar. We've also done an official one, solo mode for a cottage garden. And right now, uh, our current project is the follow-up to Terra Mystica called the Gaia Project. That's, uh, you could say it's an improved Terra Mystica in space. And we are finishing the solo mode for that up right now. And we're also working on a couple of other things. The next expansion for Scythe and uh, a solo mode for Charterstone, Jamie Stegmaier's next game. So uh, that's about it, what we've been doing in terms of solo modes for multiplayer games. I've also done a single mini expansion for Hostage Negotiator, but that's not a solo mode per se because the game is already solo. 
Right. So you've got a lot of experience in, in creating these kind of solo variants, solo mode uh, experiences for games. Now, are you, uh, do you prefer solo games? Like if you had the opportunity, you know, the option to play multiplayer or solo, would you choose solo? I like both. And I, I play both, but it's so much easier to get a solo game to the table <laughs> yeah. than a multiplayer game, right? I don't need to uh, get the gaming group over, uh, coordinate that there. All the people I play with are busy people with kids, and we live spread out over the Copenhagen area. So it's just much easier to uh, to play a game when my son has gone to bed or something like that. Yeah, you can just look in the mirror and say, do you want to play? Yes, I do. And then yeah. you can play a game. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, cool. Well, let's talk about you know designing that solo experience because this is something I've gotten a number of questions on. You know, listeners sending in emails and saying, you know, I really want to scale my game down, but I just don't know quite how to do it. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. And so, you know, when you're scaling a game down, how do you maintain the experience of the game as opposed to just kind of creating this separate thing? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question about this. Not just creating a separate thing. Because it's very important to me that I'm just creating a, a new game that just happens to use the same components. So uh, what, what I'd usually start out doing is to learn the multiplayer game and figure out what are the core interaction points between players. So if you and I are playing a game, then I try to determine where in the game do we interact, how do we interact, and which of those points of interaction are crucial for the game experience. So then I take those interaction points and I try to create a bot, an artificial opponent that mimics those interaction points. And I then remove everything that is not a direct interaction points. So let me give you an example. Uh, I don't know whether you've played Viticulture, uh, but in Viticulture, each player has a vignette produces wine, sells it, take tourist on tours, stuff like that. It's a worker placement game, so a core interaction point is, of course, the worker placement. So I have the bot place workers on the board so that it blocks some options from the human, human player, just like if I was playing against you. Um, but the vineyard itself of the bot doesn't exist because that's not a core interaction point. It's not that important in which culture, what's going on in your vineyard. To me, that's not all that important. So I just remove that. So you could basically say that the bot I try to build is uh, an empty shell. It's just a shell that the player hits and there's nothing behind it. There's just this shell and the bot doesn't have to play the real game. It just have to mimic those interactions. So. I just have to place the workers in some way. It doesn't need to play them in a way that says, okay, now I plant the, the wines. Now I harvest the grapes. Now I crush the grapes to make wine. Now I sell the wine. That's not really all that crucial for me, whether you're doing that or not. So the bot doesn't need to uh, consider all those things and be sensible in that way. It just needs to block you. Gotcha. And so you're you're really creating this... Uh, artificial intelligence system so that, you know, it, it's basically just mimicking having another player there. Yeah, sure. I, I think uh, intelligence is taking it a bit too far. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's just a deck of cards and a, a few rules. Yeah, well, let's, talk, yeah, that, let's uh, talk about that. 
with the the deck of cards. So like so because there's all sorts of ways to kind of mimic another player being there, but you use use the deck of cards. So kind of talk me through what that what that looks like. Yeah, basically in all the games we've worked on, we make this deck of cards that tells the player which actions the bot takes. So that in Viticulture, it's just where does it place its workers. In Scythe, it, it's uh, the movement of, uh, of the autonomous game pieces because in Scythe, the interaction on the board is crucial. It's a crucial point of interaction. So we need to have the bot move its game pieces around the board. So all the actions there are move a piece from one place on the board to another place. Um, and then it also gains stuff. So it brings out the mechs, its military units, one by one over the course of the game and as instructed by the cards. And that that's basically uh, the core of the system. Draw a card each turn and that card tells you which actions the bot will take. So when you're coming up with these cards and the actions that the bot's going to take, what's your what's your process for figuring out what those actions really need to be? You talked about you know getting to the core experience. Do you just play the game over and over again and kind of take notes on kind of what you're doing or what your other players are doing and then kind of put that in the cards? Or what does that look like? Um, that depends a lot on whether we're talking now or three years ago. Well, either whatever works best. Give me the best process. Yeah. Uh, initially, I did a lot of playing of the multiplayer game, but later on, I don't need to play that much. I've sort of tuned in on identifying these core interaction mm-hmm. points, so I don't need to play as much now as I used to do. So, yeah, how do I <laughs> I do this? I, I basically just, as I said, identify these interaction points and make sure that the boss do something like that. As said in Viticulture, it's, it's blindingly obvious that the core interaction point is the worker placement. So it's also obvious that the thing that bot must do is place workers. In uh, Scythe, it's uh, fairly obvious that uh, that the bot needs to have its uh, game pieces on the board move towards the player, spread out to control a lot of territory. Um, so the actions deal solely with moving the playing pieces around the board and introducing them on the board. So, so basically, it often it comes fairly easy what the kinds of interactions, the kind of action should be when you have identified the core interaction points. Now, do you do you go into like the ratios of certain actions? You know, so if one worker placement point is much more quote unquote valuable than others, does it show up more often than others? You know, than other options or other actions that the bot is going to take just to kind of mimic that ratio of a human player. Well, that also also depends uh, on which of the the games we're talking about. Yeah. Culture is by far the simplest one, and that has a fairly even distribution of actions. And it's also the game of those I've played on where human players would have a more even distribution over a series of games, because in one game you might focus on making and selling wine, and in another game you might focus more on having tourist visitors that you deal with and gain points from them but but the bot doesn't really mimic that it just takes an average over a series of game and then mimics that uh, while in the other games we've worked on we, we try to mimic more heavily the ratios uh, 
in a specific game. And in, a, in the one we're currently finishing the, the Gaia project, the Terramistica follow-up, we have made a system where as you play, the boss will make up a strategy, basically. So it, it might make up a strategy where it builds a lot of colonies on a lot of planets. Um, and then it'll st- sort of stick to that strategy during the game. In another game, it, it might prefer to upgrade planets or focus on competing with you for research points. Um, so I think that's the most advanced one we've done in, in terms of uh, how it chooses its actions and what ratios it will have. Yeah, I was just about to ask if you've ever tried to create a, a, a deck that made more specific uh, actions in a more focused kind of way, kind of to emulate a player really focusing on one part of the game. It sounds like you're doing that with, with Terra Mystica or the new the new yeah. version of it. But have you thought about having like separate decks where, you know, like in Viticulture, having a separate deck for a player that was, you know, more wine focused or, or more of this over here focused? Have you thought about trying to have separate decks? Yeah, uh, we definitely thought about that. We, we haven't really done it yet because when the more decks we add, well, well, adding more decks causes two problems. One is a one-off cost for producing the, the, the decks, right? If I, if I tell uh, the publisher that, well, I need uh, to add 100 cards so I can have five different decks for the different bots, they're going to laugh up in my face because that's too expensive just for solo mode. Yeah. So often I have a fairly limited budget of components uh, I can add to the game, which sort of rules out having separate decks for separate uh, bots. But um, we've been working on a bot for Euphoria that has been set on hold for for a long while now, but we should be returning to that. And for that, we basically have six personalities on each card. And then which personality is chosen is based on the combination of factions played by uh, the bots, because there'll be two, at least in the version we have now, there are two bots and one human player. So the combination of uh, primary factions for uh, the two bots will determine the, the personality combination they'll use on the card. So in that way, we will have six personality combinations on the same set of cards. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I was actually going to, it leads into my next question of how do you represent things on the cards, especially if you're, you know, if you're going to have the multiple personalities, like you say, or with the the, the new Terra Mystical, where you have a, a strategy for the bot that changes, how do you represent that with limited components? Perhaps the most inter- interesting uh, case is Terra Mystica, the, the Gaia project. Um, what we do there is that we have, a set of cards, one deck of cards, and uh, six of the cards are sort of the initial deck. You always start with those specific six cards, except when you change the difficulty level, that will somewhat influence the initial card. Then you mix in one random card from the remaining uh, deck, and then each after each round, you add in another game, another random card. So one bot might end up having three colonization cards added in, so it'll go on a colonization-heavy strategy uh, because those cards will be used more because there are more of them in its deck. 
Uh, in another situation, it might get a lot of upgrade cards, so it will upgrade its colonies instead of spreading out some a lot. And then we also have uh, seven factions. I don't have you played Terra Mystica? No, I know. I've seen playthrough videos. I never had the opportunity to play it. Okay, there's basically seven different colors uh, representing seven different factions, and it's it's the same in the in the Gaia project. So we have made one bot, basically one bot's extra personality for each of those seven factions. And then some of the action cards that the automaton can draw then says, well, look at the card for this specific faction. So we have seven cards, one for each factions, faction that then has a special action defined that is triggered once this one card is played. So we don't need to have a ton of uh, cards per faction. We just need to have one card per faction and then some cards in the deck that trigger that action, which will then be different for each faction. And we also have some ongoing abilities for uh, for the faction that will make them play a bit differently from each other. They start a little bit differently. But yeah, that, that's basically how we do it in uh, in the Gaia project. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and that's actually a really cool uh, way to handle it. So, what are some of the big biggest design challenges that you've run into while trying to scale these game down, games down to one player? Yeah, um, do we have a couple of hours? <laughs> <laughs> Give me the highlights. Yeah, um, I think the toughest one is to get the balance right between simplicity and simulation, hmm. because. You can often get very tempted to try to simulate a human player to make it as realistic as possible, to make it feel as much as possible like a human player. But if you try to do that, you'll get an, a game that's completely unwieldy to play for the human player because we need to, fo- to know that this bot we are making will actually be run by a human, by the human player. He has to take all the actions on behalf of the bot. So if the rules are complex and requires a lot of actions to be taken, then it will take a long time to actually play the game. You'll spend a lot of time on the bot's turn. You will spend a lot of time looking up rules, trying to learn the game because there'll be so many rules. Um, So you'll actually be spending more time learning the rules for the solo game instead of the multiplayer game. And you'll be spending more time on the bot's turn than on your own turn. Yeah. And most players don't like that. Right. Um, so getting the balance right between not going too far in the realism direction, but still getting something that feels like the multiplayer game, that's very, very tough in my experience. Um, so yeah, I, I talk a lot about finding the core interaction points and the mimicking those. So, identifying those and sticking to the, those, finding the simplest way of representing them. That, that's, the, that's the core challenge as I see it. Yeah, no, you make a great point. It could become such a fiddly game if you're trying to perfectly emulate another human being. And, and Exactly. It, and it wouldn't be fun. Like, I want to play a solo game. I don't want to play a game with myself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. I don't know whether you know the coin games. Like which ones? Uh, a Distant Plane, Labyrinth, The War Against Terror. Okay. Uh, there's a series of games called the Coin Games. 
and they take another approach, which is more, more, much more realistic. And th there's nothing wrong with doing that. You just give, get another kind of game that appeals to uh, another audience, a more niche audience. Um, I would say they could be core war gamers, people who think that Mage Knight is a simple filler. <laughs> right. um, th there's actually no, nothing wrong with that. It's just another way of doing it that the one approach I take and you will reach a smaller audience if you go that way. There'll be fewer people able to play what you make. Yeah, well, let's talk about them, those types of games. What What are some of the differences in those games? What makes them so much more complex or more like simulations? Yeah, well, I should say here that I have never actually played one of those exactly because of the complexity. Mm -hmm. I simply can't fit a game like that into uh, my life yeah. as it is right now. I don't have time for it. So I've only read some of the rules, talked to, to people about it, but the core difference seems to be that they're really trying to simulate much more of the human player. They, they ha Basically, you can sh represent the bots in those games as big flowcharts. Mm. Um, and I think, and I might be wrong, that in some cases you'll also be making decisions on behalf of the bot. Don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure. It's just something I've heard. And that's also something I try to avoid. Yeah, one thing I've learned in just designing my own games, and this is for multiplayer, but I see a lot of uh, similarities, is limit the amount of procedure that players have to yeah. go through. You know, step one, step two, step two A, two B, two C. You know, like, it just its yeah. too much to keep track of. Players are constantly have to look at the rules. It just sucks all the life, all the fun out of the game because it destroys the flow as all these procedures and so it sounds like what you guys are doing with the decks of cards, you just kind of have that one procedure. Turn over the card, it tells you what to do. Am, am I right on that? Yeah, you're right. Because, of course, well, you might see a couple of symbols on that card, but there'll be rules in the rule book telling you how to implement those actions, those icons. Um, so it depends on the game how many rules you need to follow to implement. But we really try to focus making those rules as simple as we absolutely can yeah so let's let's talk about some tricks that you developed to kind of speed up your process you, you talked earlier about how a few years ago your process was was different it was slower you used to have to play a game a lot well what have you kind of learned uh, in the process that that you can kind of share with with us that'll help us if we're trying to make a solo version and the the part I can't share with you that's experience, <laughs> because you you simply get quicker at doing something yeah. when you gain experience with it. Um, other than that, I'll go back to what I've talked about previously. Figure out what the core interactions are. Make define actions based on that that are triggered in simple ways, such as by turning over a card, rolling a die to determine what action to take, and those actions should then just be the simplest possible way of mimicking that action. Not taking the action like a human would, but mimicking it. Like in Scythe, it doesn't, the, the bot we made doesn't try to move it, its pieces exactly like a human player would. It, it doesn't move one unit from the space it's on to the neighboring space. It sort of just moves the pieces like an amoeba. Is that uh, pronounced correctly? Yeah, amoeba, amoeba. amoeba. Yeah. Okay, um, sort of moves like an amoeba uh, over the board, so it might take the hindmost unit and place that at the front, so that will look weird that a, a mech teleports across the board, 
from one part of the autonomous units to another. But if when you look at the big picture, that's actually not all that much different from how the game pieces of a human player will move around. So don't try to get bogged down with the details of how, how a human player conducts its actions. In, instead, just try to see, okay, when I look at this from a high level, okay, well, now we have some, some pieces and they, okay, now they stand up. Is iron pushing that's slightly different, but it doesn't really matter which piece moved from what position to what other position. So basically that boils down to accept that the bot you're making won't play as a human player. Just set up the shell of interaction points with nothing behind it. Then a simple piece of advice that will help with everything, have a team. Mm. When you do this, I have never done a solo mode alone. I always have a team to help me, to keep me honest, tell me when I'm being stupid, come up with new ideas, because when you're just one person, you can sort of get blind, go down an, an, a blind alley and not figuring out that the alley is blind. Um, and having a team will help you with that. It'll also help you finish the solo mode quicker, because very often, if you're a person like me who makes solo modes for games made by other people, then I'm often in the situation that when I start my real work, the multiplayer game is basically done. Mm. And so you have a publisher with a finished game, and then I come telling them, well, I need three to four months to uh, make the solo mode. Could you, so could you please postpone publishing for three to four months? Right. But that's not going to fly. Right. So you need to move quickly, and that's very hard to do on your own. So if you can spread out the labor to the members of the team, then you can move much faster. Yeah. Uh, because that's often necessary when doing the solo mode if you work for other people on their games. And then finally, another piece of advice that also general advice, when you work in the real world, like you do with, with games, then perfection is the enemy of good. Mm. I don't know whether you know that, yeah. that idiom, but basically it's better to get a finished game that's good out there so people can actually play it than to try to perfect some something and spend your entire life not finishing it so no one except yourself will actually play it. So knowing when what you have done is good enough is very important because otherwise you won't, will never deliver. And in most cases in the real world, perfection is impossible. Trying to chase perfection is a exotic quest. Yeah. All right, so let's unpack a few of those things. I, I got just wrote down some notes while you were talking. Let's talk about perfection. Like you say, if you, if you try to make a game perfect, you'll never finish it. It will just stay in development forever. So kind of yeah. how do you determine for your, you know, these solo variants or games, how do you determine, okay, it's done, it's ready? That's a good question. It, it's a multi-step process. So first... I, I do the first, or my team and I do the first rough sketch where we sort of can see, well, now the bot does sort of the same actions, not in the same way, but sort of the same things that a human would do on the core interaction points. It might be completely off balance, um, but it just has to behave sort of like a human. So that's the first step. Then we can see, okay, we're on the right path. And so then in the next step, we, we, we try to play it multiple times to see, okay, does this feel like the multiplayer game? So that's that's a very subjective matter 
do you get the same feel when you sit down and play against the bot? Again, the, the balance can still be off, um, but it has to feel the right way. Like either you're playing against an incredibly bad human player or a very good human player, or whatever, that doesn't matter. Just need to feel like a human player. Mm. Uh, as I said, that's very, very subjective. And then the real test comes when we bring in the play tester. So that's as in any other game design, the proof comes from the playtesters. Whether they like it, whether they think that it feels like uh, playing the multiplayer game. So that's one of the things we ask them about. Does, does this feel right? And we ask them to rate the solo mode, not based on whether they like the multiplayer game, but whether the solo mode is good and represent the multiplayer game. And only when that rating is very good, when we think that it's good enough. And then, of course, at the end, the balance also needs to be right. But that's, that's like a lot of other game design, that's for the last part of the process, right? We tweak it to get the balance right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think those are some really good uh, general tests for a game to say it's ready yeah. or it's not. It kind of gets down to your gut feeling. You go, it feels right. The game feels right, yeah. so it's ready. Uh, and listening to yeah. other people. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, you could say an additional step along the way is going over the rule book again and again with a fine-tooth comb to see, okay, could I remove one rule? Could I remove a sentence? Could I remove, remove one bullet point, one step, and then cut out everything you could remove? Yeah. Then put the game away for two weeks if you're able to take the time for that and then get back and do the same thing again. And then perhaps ask someone else to do the same. That's also why it's a good idea to have a team because you have multiple sets of eyes that can try to look for these things that can be removed. So basically remove as much as you can. And when you remove so much that doesn't feel like a human player, well, then you went a step too far and have to back up. And then you're probably at the right position. Yeah. So let's talk about the team. You know, uh, there's wisdom in many counselors, you know, having many people around you to say, hey, that's a good idea. That's a bad idea. There's a lot of value in that. So how did you find people to be on your team to help you with these projects? Yeah, well, for the most part, it's uh, people I've found during playtesting of another game um, or people I've found on uh, Board Game Geek. For Viticulture, there was one guy who did an insane number of playtests of the solo mode, and he gave me uh, valuable feedback and seemed like a nice guy I could work with when I mailed with him. So for the next project, I asked him, that's, his name is David Stutley, um, for the next project, I asked him whether he wanted to join me with the design, and luckily he said yes, and so he's been working with me and everything I've done since since then. For Scythe, there was a guy I had noticed on on Board Game Geek, a, a German guy called Linus Hutter, who, who who said a lot of good stuff about game design. He a lot of clever stuff I, I felt, um, and he participated in playtesting Scythe, the solo mode, and he gave us some very good feedback there. And at the same time, he was an other type of gamer than David Stutley and me. So I felt that not only would he be a good addition because he said intelligent things and he felt like a guy I could work with, but also he could offer a different perspective because he liked other types of game 
than David and I did. He's a more of a thematic gamer where David and I try to design Euro mechanics. So, and another parameter is I need to feel that I can work with these people. They need to be people where I can say, that's wrong, that's not gonna work, and they won't take it personally. And at the same time, they need to be able to say the same thing to me. They can't be yes men. Uh, they need to tell me when I'm being stupid, and I won't hold that against them. I'll thank them um, for telling me when I'm stupid, and I expect them to thank me when I say they're stupid. So, so yeah, that's a, some some of the criteria I use, and basically, it's people I meet during playtesting on, on Board Game Geek for the upcoming Thighs expansion to the Wind Gambit. There's a guy on Board Game Geek who basically. Uh, 95 out of 100 times beat me to answering root questions about uh, the, the the solar bot. And every time I just I came in a few hours later and said, well, the rev is right. That's his handle on the board game geek. Um, so I could just come in. Yes, the rev is right again. <laughs> and I don't know how many times I've said that. And he seemed to understand both what made the bot tick and what made Scythe tick. So for the second expansion, we invited him to join the team. The final guy we have, another German, Jan Schröder. Basically, uh, I saw him do two PNP games that was uh, incredibly creative. He had some fresh ideas that I hadn't seen before. And he wrote some guest posts for me on my blog that was also very creative. So for... Uh, the the Gaia project and for Charterstone we're bringing him on board to help us because he can get those offbeat ideas that the rest of us doesn't get. We'll probably end up rejecting the vast majority of them, but every once in a while he's going to hit a home run and we'll have something that's much better because of him. Okay, awesome. It sounds like you know you found some really great people to work with just organically, just kind of people in the community, people already contributing and helping people out. And, and that's a Definitely. really great way uh, to find people. But it's, it also speaks to a lot uh, about how how people can get involved with stuff because a lot of times people ask, well, I want to be involved with the industry, but I don't know how. And the biggest thing is well, just get out there and help people in any way you exactly. can, whether it's answering rules questions, whether it's you know writing blog posts, whether it's just – communicating and, and, and just kind of being there, that's really a great way to, to get opportunities in the future to be a part of really cool projects. Yeah, definitely. The, the way I got involved with Stone Maya Games was exactly that way. That was during the Viticulture Kickstarter. I I found I asked Jamie Stegmaier to, uh, whether I could have the rule book because back then it wasn't normal to put the rule book online as part of a Kickstarter and well, he sent it to me, and I found some typos, asked whether he wanted to see those, and so he wanted to do that, so he made the changes, sent it back to me. I found more typos and more t- changes, and so we went back and forth. I helped a lot on clarifying the rule book. Then I playtested it, gave him feedback, tried out a, a variant rule he was considering, and gave him feedback on that, write a view, review about it before there were very much information about the game. And then later on, we started discussing game design. I... He bounced balls off me, and so step by step, I got more and more involved. Initially, and this is going to sound bad or wrong, initially you will be working for free. Yeah, I have done a ton of work for free, and and it didn't matter to me at all. I had a ton of fun, and 
felt it was awesome that I could could get get involved in actually making games just a teeny weeny bit. Uh, 99.99% of everything was of course Jamie, but just that 0.001% of the process that was me was so awesome. And it was my hobby, so working for free was not a an issue. I don't expect to get paid to play a board game because that's my hobby. I don't get, expect to get paid to discuss game design for fun. And the problem, one problem and one good thing of the business is that there are so many people who are into it as a hobby. So every time there's a paid position available in the business, there will be a thousand people who would love to get it and who would love to get it and work for free in that position. So it's very, very hard to land an actual job and there's not all that much money to go around. So most game designers work in their spare time. So basically you you should do this for fun as a hobby, not to get a job. Yeah, and also like you make a good point, it's not like you're digging ditches. I mean, you, you would be playing games regardless. That's something you enjoy, it's something you love to do. And then it can lead to opportunities to get paid in the future, but it, it has yeah. to start with that passion, with that enjoyment, with that desire, just to help people, just to help designers, help uh, like with typos and rule books. I've got a guy that yeah. uh, he asked if he could see the rule book to a game I'm working on. I sent it to him and he sent it back. I mean, it was just hammered. It was all written up in red and all these things. But <laughs> I was so thankful that somebody would take the time to do that just because he wanted to. He's got kind of a, yeah. I think his mom was an English teacher. And so he's got that in him, you know, to kind of yeah. go through grammar and all that. And it's just a huge blessing, just a huge uh, benefit to me and the game I'm working on to have somebody like that. But that's the kind of guy that in the future, if, if I had an opportunity to pay someone to do it, he'd be one of the first guys I contacted, you know, it's just, Hey, you, yeah, did exactly. great, you did great work for me before. Really appreciate what you did. Um, how about this? Would you, would you be interested in this opportunity here? And that's just kind of how the way things work in this industry. Yeah, definitely. I think there's also a, an alternate path into the industry, and that's participating in the community. Mm. So apart from getting into contact with Jamie Stegmaier, then my other path was doing a blog on solo gaming, writing about solo game design. Because not only that did I then know Jamie Stegmaier, but when he needed a solo mode, then he knew already knew from my blog that I actually knew a, a, right. a bit about solo games and how to, how to design them. And like with some of the people I have in my team now and to get paid by, by me now, they're people I've noticed on Board Game Geek. So what they did there, I liked, and so I wanted to work with them. Some have, uh, have participated in uh, the Solitaire Print and Play Contest. That's... Uh, annual competition on uh, Board Game Geek, hosted by Chris Hansen, uh, who is uh, basically the print-and-play guy on Board Game Geek. And that, that's the way I, I got started with uh, putting my design out there. That was in uh, the design con- Solitaire Print-and-Play Design Contest of 2013, where I made a game for that, and I had a ton of fun interacting with the other people doing game design there, and because you're part of a contest, more people will see your game than if you just do a PNP game and just upload it somewhere. Yeah. That that contest will get, get the game more attention. You'll get way more feedback. And the more you work on uh, game design, the more feedback you get, 
the better you'll get and the better advice you'll be able to offer up to uh, to game designers who are making published games. So you will be a greater help to them. And so they will be much more likely to ask you again the next time. Yeah, and I think you make a great point in that every day is an interview. Every post you, you put online on BoardGameGeek, every blog you write, everything is an interview that is telling someone, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. This person is knowledgeable. This is someone I could yeah. I could ask a question or, or send an idea or something to, and they'd give me good feedback. The final thing is that you can only do this from passion. You can't just say, okay, I'll write a blog so that I can get famous and uh, land a land a game design job. Right. That's If you do that, you'll write five, ten posts, and then you'll get bored yep. and stop. Uh, and that that's not any help unless those posts are, posts are brilliant, and they're not likely to be. My first posts were definitely not brilliant. Um, but you get better as you do it. But you can only continue writing again and again and again if you like writing those blog posts. And you can only design games, a lot of games, enough games to get good at it if you really love game design and you need to love the full process, not the initial two days where (laughs) ideas are bouncing around your head and anything goes and it's just super fun. The remaining 99% of game design is work. Polishing, tweaking, reading that effing rule book for the 100th time (laughs) till you just can't stand the sight of it and play the game until it's boring and play a game that's broken initially stuff like that if you don't have enough passion to go through with that then by all means do the parts you like but but don't try to think that you will be getting into the game publishing because that's work yeah it's 1% game design and it's 99% work. And so there's definitely nothing wrong with doing the most enjoyable part of the process. Actually, I would advise doing that because you'll have more fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you're serious about getting a, a game published, then you need to love the other 99% that's work also. Yeah. It reminds me of what Ignacy Chevichek talks about. He, you know, He's created some amazing games. Robinson Crusoe, Cry Havoc. Uh, 51st State, Nurshima Hex, all these just amazing games. But he talks about how he gets to a point where he just hates the game that he's working on. He says, I hate this game. I'm ready to be done with it. It's not done. Yeah. I hate it. I'm tired of playing it. I'm tired of going through the rules. I'm tired of playtesting. But it, it, it's in that grind. It's in that work and that sweat and just keep on, keep on, keep on that a great game gets produced. And so, exactly like you're saying, you know, it, it's a lot of fun, that first initial idea, and you're going through your notebook and you're writing all these ideas down and all this stuff. That's a lot of fun. But, man, that's not a game. That's an idea. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing I want to go back to is something you were talking about a little while ago with uh, how the like how the mechs move and scythe and you know, adding different things to a solo experience that maybe don't make sense in and of themselves, but in the big picture do make sense. And this is kind of something I've learned is you're always – trying to find that line between what makes sense and what's fun because what really makes sense like in reality in the real world a lot of times isn't necessarily that much fun I, you know for instance games that you have to keep track of food and like make sure you feed your people okay i get it it makes sense yes people eat and if they don't eat they die i understand that 
But personally, that's not very fun for me to make sure, you know, oh, I got to make sure I get enough bread to feed my people. And I understand mechanically sometimes it works out. But in general, that's not an enjoyable experience for me is like, oh, oh, I got to get enough food. And so kind of talk about that in, in these solo experiences you have uh, that you're, you've been creating is that fine line between what makes sense and what's fun. Yeah, Scythe is a great example, like you mentioned, because if it were to make sense, then it w- would m- the, the bot would move its mechs and its workers just like a human would from one space to the neighboring space. But it becomes too much work to move all the pieces one space at a time. So instead of move, moving a lot of pieces one space, we move one a game piece a lot of spaces. So the end result is sort of the same, mm-hmm. but if you really think about what's going on, it, it looks a bit silly. Um, we, we uh, On my blog, I think one of the, the readers came up with a term for this based on viticulture. I don't know, know where they played it, but I said it's about making wine. Yeah. And uh, as wine age, it becomes better. And that's, that's represented in uh, viticulture, with, which is a very thematic mechanic but you're also aging the grapes that are lying on your crush pad so that they get better and more valuable year after year while they're just lying out there. <laughs> um, and of course, that doesn't make sense in the real world. The grapes would be bad. Right. But Jamie found out that making the grapes go bad at once instead of aging them from year to year made the game be not fun. So the, the term that uh, this reader came up with was aging the grapes so that's sort of the <laughs> the phrase yeah. we use for this type of mechanic that you need to to have fun, but makes absolutely no sense in the real world. Uh, and we have a ton of that in uh, in our solar modes. Why are the bots workers going all over the place without actually having a vineyard? How can it sell wine when it doesn't have any wine? Why does it... Uh, sell the wine and then harvest it stuff like that it makes no sense but it makes it much easier for the human player to manage the bot yeah because if i wanted to really really have a simulation of a vineyard i would go plant some grapes and i would make my own <laughs> vineyard like that's, i want to play a game you know and when, yeah, exactly. when it's a game i'm not necessarily uh, interested in a in a flight simulator of a board game you know where every knob and button and you know all the different things are super important no, i just want i just want to play a game like yesterday i was working on a, a dungeon crawl and there came a, a point in the game where i had this like character show up and it's like it makes no sense for this guy to be in this dungeon like why would he be here it, he has no business being here but i need him to be here because at this point in the game the the players are probably going to be almost dead and this guy can help them get their health back you know and that's yeah. more fun it's more fun to keep playing as opposed to just dying in the next room and to do that i need some kind of guy or something there to do that. So, okay. So it doesn't make sense for this dude to be here, but it's more fun that he is. Yeah. Have you played uh, Lord of the Rings, the card game? Yes. From Fantasy Flight? Just, just once, well, but yeah, a while it, back. It, it has the same issue mm-hmm. because you start with these three heroes and as you march into enemy territory, you meet one friend after another yeah. who uh, <laughs> joins your party. So there are more of your allies in, in <laughs> way behind enemy lines <laughs> yeah. than there are on your side of the enemy lines. And when you're exploring Moria, this giant eagle will swoop down yeah. and help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's more fun that way. Yeah, exactly. And so it's important not to get 
get lost in the reality or the nuances uh, nuances of reality because a lot of times it just sucks the life out of a game. Yeah. We found that also in the Between Two Cities, it's a tile-laying game where you build cities in a 4 by 4 grid, and the spatial positioning of those tiles matter because if you place a house next to a factory, then people won't like living in the house. And so you have... We have two bots, and they build a city together. Because in this game, you you build cities in pairs. So the two bots also build their own city. Um, and getting those bots to build a correct city in a four by four grid in a way that makes sense would be very complex. So we just say, whoop! It uh, doesn't build a real city. It just takes a tile and place them in a row per type and then it scores by simple rules and picks tiles based on those simpler rules so that it still scores realistically but it it doesn't need to to figure out where to place each tile spatially so it simplifies a lot but the city it builds doesn't really make sense yeah but i think it's really it gets to the difference between playing a solo variant of a game as opposed to playing a two-player version of the game where I am both players. Like, that's a very big difference. Because a lot of times, you know, when you're trying to create a solo experience, it just turns into me playing against myself. And that's not what I want. Is It's a two-player game. And so it, just realizing that, you know, you don't have to make, it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. You don't have to have all these procedures if you're trying to create a solo variant. Exactly. And exactly the point you you mentioned here is very important to me. I have it as a very strict rule, or a very strict rule with exceptions, <laughs> um, that the player can never make decisions on behalf of the bot. Yeah. Because if I all of a sudden have to uh, make decisions on the part of the bot, then who am I? Right. Am I the, the side of the game I'm playing, or am I the bot? I, I'll be shifting back and forth. So my immersion in the game will be reduced. My suspension of disbelief uh, will be reduced by jumping back and forth and uh, being myself, being my opponent, being myself, being my opponent. So I really try to avoid that. And there can be cases. Yeah, well, I should say, but basically to, to get back to your point, when I start letting the, uh, the human player make decisions on behalf of the player, then you enter a slippery slope where you can easily end up, like you say, just playing both sides in a two-player game. And some people do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not fun for me, and the majority of solo players prefer to play a solo game, not a two-player game, two-sided. So, so yeah, I really try to avoid having the players make decisions on behalf of the bot. You also get into these weird situations where you have to decide well, should I do what's good for the bot or should I do what's best for me? <laughs> right. It could actually be sort of an ethical discussion yeah. with yourself. And it makes it very obvious to you that now you're playing a game where you have this sort of discussion with yourself. You're not in the game world. Yeah, You're playing the game, uh, gaming mechanics, stuff like that. You're not in the game world. Um so, yeah, but as I said, there are exceptions to this very strict rule. There are two kinds of exceptions they are, that, that I sort of accept. 
there are situations where your interests are aligned with the bot. So in between two cities, when the bot, when, when you place tiles into the city you share with another player, you talk about what's the best way to place this tile and your interests are 100% aligned. So once the bot has chosen a tile, because that's the situation where your interests are not aligned, so the bot needs to make that choice on its own. But once it has chosen that tile, your interest and the bot's interest are 100% the same. So there we allow the human player to make the decision under the part of the bot, because then we can avoid having the player reason about these spatial positions that I talked about before, because the human player can then take that decision. And it will still feel right, because as I said, in the real game in the with the human player, you'd still be uh, discussing what to do in cooperation, because you wanted to do the best thing, both of you. Um, and the other exceptions can be for thematic reasons where I could accept making a decision for the bot that makes thematic sense. You could say in a zombie game, you say that zombies are so mind-numbingly stupid that you could trick them into going the wrong way by throwing a rock or something like that. So there might be uh, edge cases where you could be allowed to choose where a zombie would go because you could sort of rationalize that thematically. I would strive very hard I'll do everything I could to avoid that, but it could be a situation where it could make somatic sense to make a simple decision on behalf of the bot. So yeah, that, that's the two exceptions I, I would I would personally accept. Yeah, and that kind of leads into my, my next question. What are some of the design choices that you've tried that just don't work? That just like you've tried it in different games, different ways, but just haven't found a way to make them work? Yeah, actually not all that many. I find that as with the physical toolbox, there are some tools you use rarely, but when you need them, they're good for the job, uh, for this one specific thing. So a mechanic that might be awful in one situation might be just do the trick in another. So unless we're talking really stupid ideas, um, like a hammer your own toe with a hammer, <laughs> stuff like that, then I find that a lot of things will actually be useful, just rarely perhaps. So, Morton, tell me just some other ideas as far as like ways to handle solo mode. So maybe things that you don't do specifically, but other ways that designers have come up with to handle the single player experience. Yeah, there, there are several different approaches. We already talked about uh, the coin games, a distant plane, labyrinth, the war on terror, where you just sort of simulate the other player. But there are also simpler ways of doing it where you basically just remove the other player from the game and then you just play what's left alone and Uwe Rosenberg uh, one of the greatest designers alive sort of uses this approach in most of his game in Agricola a worker placement game there are no other player you don't compete for placing workers on the, on the action spaces there's no player to steal the resources on the board so you just go and pick up the resources once they have piled up, because they do that in Agricola, right? They, some of the action spaces have resources piling up each round, and you just pick up them up when you need them, and once sufficient amount of resources have piled up, 
and you don't compete with another player for high score. You just try to see how many points can I score. So it's a completely different, more relaxed experience. But it's still basically the same rules you play by. Um, so you need to, it's basically the same game you learn and the same game you play. There's just not this annoying other guy who steals your action spaces and your resources. So, so that's also a fairly common approach. We have also Nations the Dice game, where you also just basically removes war from the game. It's a simple uh, civilization builder. And in the multiplayer game, you can have simple wars. But you just remove that from the solo mode because there's no one to have a war with. Um, so it plays fairly closely to uh, just playing the same game alone. There's one mechanic for removing some tiles from the games to sort of simulate another player, but also, there are also parts of the game we just play the normal game without another player. So basically games where we just turn into the same game without the other player and then play for high scores. Yeah, so, so that's a very common approach also. And then as a sort of a similar example to what I do, but which predated mine, is uh, Race for the Galaxy. In uh, the first expansion for that game, there was a solo bot implemented that does a lot of the same things that I like to do, but of course they did it before me. Um, but they based it on a lot of data. They gather it up, a lot of data from real games played between human players. And because the game is not that interaction heavy, they could sort of remove, take one player from the game and do his moves. And then they could, on the computer, design simple bots which then could let play against all these human players they had had recorded to the moves are so they could simply just try again and again and again to play this bot against human players but at, during all that of all that experiment they kept uh, they stuck to rules that were very simple so that when they were done with the computer they could move those rules into cardboard but it was a great idea because they could get the balance so great because they could just run simulation after simulation is, instead of doing playtest. So they could they could do a thousand playtests in a day. So so that's an interesting approach in my opinion, but it only works with games with low interaction. Well, awesome man! Really appreciate your time. Do you have any kind of like? last advice, just general, you've talked about so much stuff already, but just any kind of like last little advice for somebody who's working on a solo variant for their game or for, for a game right now? Basically, most of the advice I have is written on my blog because that that's how I learn myself. That's by writing down the thoughts I have because that sort of crystallizes my thoughts. So there's a lot of advice there. But other than that is to figure out ahead of time What's my method? What's my goals? And then as you go along in the process, then don't forget those goals. Don't forget your method because that's human nature to sort of just go on, on a ride and wherever it takes you. And then you end up in a completely different place that you actually, than you actually want to go. And it can take forever to get there. You can ride around in circles going all over the place and never finish. So initially figure out What's your method? I have my method, which I've talked about. It doesn't need to be the same for you, but figure out what your method is. And every time you make a decision, then check, well, is this method in line 
with my uh, is this sorry this choice this decision is that in line with my method same thing with the goals design goals for your project write them down fairly early in the process and when you make a decision then go back to the goal, goal and see will this decision bring me closer or further away from the design goals I set out initially so and then let your method and your goals guide your process and then when you when you're talking about solo modes specifically if you like me work on other people's games then it's extremely important to respect the design vision of the game's designer so even if you don't agree with some of the design choices made then stay true to them in your solo mode that will make the solo mode feel more like the multiplayer game and there's a better chance that this designer will ask you to make a new solo mode for him because if you have basically made it a completely different game but just use the same components then he likely don't want to work with you the next time he he wants you to make his game solo playable he doesn't want you to make another game um so so stay true to uh, to the vision of the original designer and be ready to work very quickly as i said once the multiplayer game is done you can't ask the publisher to wait mo- wait months and months just to make the so- get the solo mode done so your method needs to account for that you may need to have people who can help you with the work in parallel you need to have playtesters lined up so you don't need to spend weeks finding the playtesters so do everything you can to make the process quick yeah i i think that's uh, that's about it yeah well that's awesome awesome advice now what's the uh, web Thank address you. to your website yeah it's uh if right now if you just go to automafactory.com that's a u t o m a factory.com then then that will uh, just uh, forward you to my blog on board game geek yeah i have category links there for the things related to the method i use for solo variants and links for the category of posts that just deals with solo game design in general yeah so if you're listening to this you're really trying to figure out solo variants or work on one for yourself highly recommend going to morton's blog reading everything you can learn as much as you can and then I really think it's gonna it's gonna help people. It's gonna help you make really good versions of your game, solo versions of your game. Morton, man, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate all your insight, insight and advice, and all this. Some really good stuff in this episode. Uh, we're about to head over to a bonus round. I'm gonna ask you about rule books. And as a as a non English speaker, as a English as a second or third or fourth, I don't know language. You know what designers can do to make those rule books easier for for guys like you that are trying to learn them that maybe don't have a full grasp on the language yet. So we're going to talk about that in the bonus round. But just really appreciate your time and good luck with everything you got going on. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. It was very interesting talk to me for me. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?